Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jim Remsen, author of Back from Battle. Jim Remsen is the author of Back from Battle, the forgotten story of Pennsylvania's Camp Discharge and the weary Civil War soldiers it served. Where was Camp Discharge located? It was actually in a spot that plenty of people have passed by and not known it. It was in, it's in uh, what is now Gladwin, PA, on a slope that overlooks the Schuylkill Expressway. Uh, so thousands of motorists whiz by there, having no clue that that's what they're passing. It's a wooded slope that uh, goes up from the Schuylkill River to a bluff uh, above, and the camp was uh, in that, that slice of uh, woodland and some of the bluff up above. Now, this is an area outside of Philadelphia. At, at the time, Correct. during the Civil War, was this a rural area? It was. It was farmland, pasture land, lightly settled. Uh, farm, farms were scattered uh, and a few small settlements and crossroads uh, settlements, but by and large it was uh, open farmland. Why was the camp established? Yeah, that's a good question. Why was it established at all? Um, and then why it was located there? It was set up in 1864, three years into the Civil War, to uh, facilitate the um, discharge out of their regiments of men who had signed up three years earlier and their, their term of duty was three years. They were called three-year men and their time was up. And so they were wanting to get out. They felt that the government had a duty to let them out on time. They had uh, served their time, given their pound of flesh and then more, and uh, they wanted out. Their families wanted them uh, to return home. Some of them re-upped into uh, stayed in the military, but the vast majority wanted out. So it, this camp was set up to process uh, out a particular group of uh, soldiers, both uh, Pennsylvania volunteers from the eastern part, uh, whose regiments had been mustered in in the eastern part of Pennsylvania. Some of the men actually were from central and western Pennsylvania, but the point was their regiments had trained and been mustered in in camps in eastern PA as part of this jurisdiction. Um, and these were in those regiments, but these were also men who had been cut off from their regiments during the war through uh, circumstances of war. They might have been sent on detached duty elsewhere. They might have been injured and been stuck behind while their regiment marched off elsewhere. They might have been captured. Many, many of them, hundreds of them, had been captured and held uh, in Confederate prisons down south. So the rest of their regiment had stuck together and moved off through battle and then finally were mustered out uh, as a group. These were the stragglers who, for one reason or another, had been stuck, left behind. They made their way up and were directed to this camp, which was really uh, particularly to, to handle these stragglers, uh, is a term I will use for them. Why was located there on a remote hillside outside of Philadelphia seems to be because of a fear of contagion um, and because the, there were a lot of camp diseases that a lot of these soldiers had had um, and the public was nervous about them. Public authorities were wanting to have some separation 
Um, and it was placed up there. It was along a rail line, so there was ready access, but uh, it was a remote location. So the Army leased the site from one of the farmers who owned that property and actually his farmhouse as well. And uh, the commandant of the camp moved into the farmhouse. The camp was set up in uh, late 1864. It was only there for about a year, processing as quickly as efficiently as it could these uh, often very sick uh, men who were coming up in spurts from the south, sometimes alone, sometimes in small groups. Um, so did they, did they come directly to Camp Discharge or did they go someplace else and then were sent to Camp Discharge? Yeah, uh, well, there were probably a hundred different ways, a hundred different stories. Uh, they would administratively be directed to, the, to Philadelphia, to the mustering office in downtown Philadelphia where they would um, report and their papers would be held by the mustering adjutant's office and then the men were given passes and sent up to camp discharge. And then the task of the, the adjutant's office was to uh, chase down their um, paperwork um, their full reports that were held by their regiments and who knows where their regiments were and there was no, no texting and no email back then so couriers would be scurrying around. Often these, their regiments were still fighting down in the field or had been other cases all mustered out and people were you know, scattered back home. So it was a task that sometimes would take weeks, many weeks to reconcile their paperwork. So they would go to the camp and kill time, basically, until um, everything was squared away. And then some uh, officer would report to the camp with their final pay, uh, with their discharge paper, and uh, they would figure out if they wanted to buy their weapon, if they wanted to you know, work out all the final things. They could take their knapsack back with them. They'd get a pass, uh, a rail line pass, to head back home. Um, sometimes it would happen quickly, uh, and like I say, sometimes it would take many weeks, and there was a lot of grumbling as the men, well, you know, often were very close to home. They might have been from Philadelphia. Most of the regiments represented at the camp were Philadelphia-based regiments, so these men were only miles from home, but yet they had to sit up there. Um, what was their daily life like? Uh, it was a lot of downtime. Um, they would might be given make work assignments around the camp to clear out the camp or to gather firewood, uh, but a lot of it would be probably uh, playing cards and catching up, um, telling stories, uh, resting up from the trauma of war. Um, many of them, hundreds of them, uh, were being treated by the camp hospital. Uh, and so they would have to report there, and some of them would be what we call outpatients. They would go and get their, um, their treatment and then go back to their barracks and rest up. Others were so sick they would have to check in, and a few of them died up there, but others went home and still were not in good health. So it was a mix of, of what they were doing, but um, they would... Uh, there was some laxity in giving them passes uh, to go off the site, to go, you know, on a, up to Norristown, up to Conshohocken, and into Philly. But they had to report back and be there for the morning roll call. Otherwise, they would be thrown into the guardhouse. And there was, there were men going AWOL. They weren't, you know, altogether never coming back. They would go home for a while or they just overstay their their uh, pass and then be disciplined for that. Uh, so there there was there were discipline problems, but uh, by and large the men, had, like I say, had a lot of downtime and um, 
some were probably happy to have downtime and just rest up from you know the rigors of war. Others were so restless and wanted to get out, and there were there were complaints in the book. We described some of this, these complaints about the uh, the time they had to kill there. Well, talk about some of those complaints. What what were people concerned about? Well, they wanted to get home. Uh, they had done everything that they were expected to do. They would hand it in their paperwork, um, and they just had to sit. Um, and they also were feeling like the officers were kind of a ragtag bunch themselves there, felt like the camp wasn't well run. Um, one fellow, we have a long uh, letter that he wrote to his congressman uh, complaining about how long he and others had been there. And he got action. Uh, within a few days, he was uh, discharged. Um, but it was a constant complaint. Uh, there's a term of the day, a growler's paradise, and the camp seemed to <laughs> have been a growler's paradise. No one really wanted to be there. Think of it, they'd gone through three years of horrific war. These were young men, uh, and they re were ready to get home, and their families wanted them to get home as well. Um, and often they were very close to home, so they just, you know, it was like a way station they had to sit at. It's an interesting aspect of the war that really is not that well uh, understood and written about. Research, the, the final months of the, of the war and the few, first few months of, of the peace in, in 65, 66, and the, the challenges of demobilizing this vast army and doing it in a you know orderly methodical way while there was so much agitation to get out um, and also how to handle the the stragglers a lot of the regiments were discharged in an orderly way they held together uh, through the months of the war and they were mustered out in the field and then sent back to the state to what were called rendezvous points where they would again get their their final pay and their their discharge papers and off they'd go uh, this camp was there to handle the uh, the forgotten ones, the ones who were the stragglers who had been down south, who uh, some were half dead by the time they arrived from back. Hundreds of them had been at Andersonville, that notorious uh, Confederate prison camp in southern Georgia. We have a, a list of that in the book. There were 331 from Andersonville. Now, if, we, if you and I were soldiers riding the train up from Philadelphia and we stepped off the train, what would we see as we arrived? Well, we'd see the hustle bustle of the city, and we, I'm sure, be pretty, uh, pretty amazed and happy to be there. But then, still under military command, so they had to report to the uh, this adjutant's office down at 11th and Spruce in what's now Center City, Philly, and you know, stick to it, go there and uh, report and uh, be sent away. So there they were in the city, but then quickly on a train and hustled away to to this remote camp and, you know, on a wooded hillside. What was the camp like? How big was it? What type of structure? Yeah, it was about there? a quarter mile square. Uh, it was surrounded by a big, like a Fort Apache fence, fence a 12 foot high stockade fence all the way around quarter mile, more or less. Uh, it, again, it ran up the slope and then flattened out toward the top. Um, there were uh, 10 barracks buildings, two story, pretty, pretty big, uh, impressive uh, barracks buildings that were just built for this um, at the, toward the upper end. And then at the very top, there were administrative headquarters and the officers' quarters and, you know, other supply buildings. And in, uh, that was like a campus, a quadrant. Uh, in the middle was a parade ground. A lot of the time, the commandant was working hard to level out that parade ground on what was, you know, very uneven terrain. 
uh, with, in hopes of having, you know, parade drills and marching and all. It didn't seem like he was very successful at that, and the book gets into that as well. He had envisioned having uh, the public show up for Sunday dress parade, and uh, people weren't really showing up, and they canceled that. Um, but he, he was working hard to keep doing, to get that graded. Uh, and then there were latrines scattered around um, as well. The bottom half was a trail leading up from the, the train stop and, and the old farmhouse, the old settler's farmhouse where the commandant uh, not only lived but brought his family to, to join him. Yeah. Now, the, the uh, camp was designed by John MacArthur, an architect. Uh, who was he? That? He yes, he was a renowned architect who worked for the quartermaster in the of the army, designing and um, you know overseeing the construction of a number of military installations, including big hospitals, but depots and other uh, bases like this. And he went on after the war to gain renown as the architect of of Philadelphia City Hall. You know our massive city hall. That's the product of of uh, John MacArthur. Who was the camp commander? Believe it or not, his name was John Hancock. I, <laughs> I tried to find his signature somewhere, was unable to see how he signed his name. He was the kid brother of Winfield Scott Hancock, who was a very famous Civil War general, one of the heroes of, of Gettysburg. And uh, so John had uh, already served as a, as a junior officer in, another, in one of the regiments and gotten a Medal of Honor. Uh, so he was, a, you know, served uh, with distinction himself. But he angled to get the, um, this uh, assignment back closer to home. He's from Norristown. And uh, so he got it, uh, no surprise. And uh, he went as a young man in his early 30s. He was the commandant of this camp. There was. Uh, also uh, staffed by uh, hundreds of garrison guards, they, were, they would be called, who would, you know, police the camp. Um, so the, the, the number of men who went there to be discharged was, a, by our reckoning, a little over 1,100. Again, be aware they, they were just fragments of many, many other regiments, 89 regiments in all. Um, so there were about 1,100 of them, and then over time, in a rolling way, there were uh, uh, waves of garrison guards brought in that numbered over 600. So he had 600 men under his command, and he was just basically trying to keep a lid on things, keep the men there. So when they, the discharge was ready, they would be there, and they would be processed out. Um, what kind of a commander was Hancock? Uh, did, did he get along with the men? He was uh, overseeing their well-being, yeah. I mean, uh, you get a mixed picture of him. Um, he was um, able to be sure they, their barracks were insulated carefully, uh, they were well cared for. He had to crack down on discipline because of this AWOL problem, and he was throwing men into the, into the brig, into the guardhouse. Um, he comes across as a little bit of a, um, a, uh, a prideful. Uh, he was very con concerned about his, um, his parade ground, and he arranged to bring in a band uh, and to have a, a, a band uh, tent set up for the band. Uh, you know, he had dreams of having a very fancy 
place. And he, he fancied up his farmhouse and brought up his wife and kids as well as daughters. Uh, and one of the um, reports on the camp that is uh, in the book also has an, uh, another um, representative of the quartermaster coming up and saying, who the heck wanted to build a camp here? And what was this guy fancying up his, his um, farmhouse like this for? And he couldn't believe the camp was up there. So you get a kind of a, a mixed picture of, of the man as brave in his time uh, in battle and yet um, a little bit vain, you might say, in how he administered the camp. So you mentioned that the camp was inspected and, and uh, they, they commented on Hancock's uh, use of the camp. In, in the book, you say that in the inspection report, it says two-thirds of this ground is for the use of the command, and the remaining one-third seems to be reserved for the convenience of the commander. Uh, they didn't seem to have a high opinion of him. Yes. How about that? Um, you know, by then, this was at the tail end of the camp's time, so this was kind of a kick in the pants on as the door was closing anyway. So there was no, no discipline for him in particular. It was just, the, uh, the, the officer sent up there was just astonished that uh, things had been run like that. But, uh, you know, Hancock was uh, near the end of his term of service as well. So, yes, uh, there, it was a, a slap in the face, you might say, but uh, there was no consequence particular that I could tell for him. He went on after the war to... Uh, become a lawyer and spent most of his the rest of his career in Washington D.C., where he he died and and is buried. One of the features of the camp was a very large flagpole. Uh, how did yeah. Hancock get that flagpole? Yeah, how about that? It apparently towered over the area for mile could be seen for miles around. Well, there there had been a sanitary commission fair held. Uh, just before the camp was being, you know, uh, ordered and constructed. Uh, it was at what's now Logan Circle in downtown Philadelphia, uh, where the Franklin Institute is and, and some other institutions people would be familiar with. And you can see in old uh, pictures of the sanitary fair this enormous flagpole. And it's the one that then he arranged to get and have moved up and erected up on the hilltop at Camp Discharge, way up at the at the upper end of the grounds, and enormous. Uh, and then after after when they auctioned off and sold off all the uh, uh, you know articles of the camp, uh, that flagpole went up to a a, a mill actually uh, that was up in um, Balagomingo Mill up in Conshohocken, where it was erected, and we have a picture of that in the book as well. Until finally, a, f a fire brought it down in the 1870s, I believe it was. Now, in the book, you mentioned that uh, the medical records show that infectious diseases at the camp included things like smallpox, typhoid, cowpox, diphtheria, influenza. Uh, what was that experience like for them? Can you imagine? Yeah. And so, like I say, some of these men showed up very ill with contagious diseases. And you can imagine some of the other men would not want to set foot in the infirmary in the hospital there uh, because of fear of, you know, picking it up themselves. So um, hospitals were not places where you went to get healed. Often it's where you would go to, to die, you know, your last stage. Um, yeah, it was bad. And they were treated with some some powerful and inappropriate medicines of the day. Medicine was pretty primitive in the U.S. back then. The, the germ theory of disease was starting to take hold in Europe, but it, not really in the U.S. as well. And so there were still these uh, old world or uh, old fashioned beliefs in how you treated diseases, that disease was spread through bad air, through miasma, 
that were called miasmatic diseases. And some of the ways to uh, try to treat it would be to get rid of noxious ingredients in people by basically dehydrating them or bleeding them. Uh, there were treatments where they would try to uh, get all of the, your saliva out uh, or try to get all of the urine out of your system or sweat, to have you sweat deliberately or uh, like I say, bleeding, or they would do this cupping where they put a cup on your skin to suck up a, a big blood blister, you might call it, in, uh, on the surface in order to try to purge these noxious ingredients. Well, it wasn't effective. It was not working. Also, some of the uh, medicines they were, they were uh, cooking up had some uh, very toxic ingredients themselves. Um, mercury was in widespread use and different variations of mercury, which is a, a poison. Um, and some of the other uh, treatments they were giving were ineffectively, you know, uh, nothing much in them. It would be like oatmeal uh, and, you know, different things like that that weren't really uh, doing the trick either. So it was a, a rough long haul for some of these men, and they never really recovered. They, there are stories of men getting back home after the war and dying within weeks or months of the war, dying, just dropping dead on the street. Others uh, had lingering diseases that debilitated them for the rest of their lives, and we tell some of those stories in there. So, you know, people need to understand this. It was a time of glory, but also a time of real misery for these men who had gone off to war in the prime of life. I mean, you've got to remember, when they signed up in 61, these three-year men I was referring to earlier, they probably thought the war was going to be over uh, in the summer, that they'd be back by harvest or certainly by winter. Well, no, we know that that did not happen. The war became just a slugfest that uh, went on for years, and they did have to serve their full term if they lived through it. And uh, like I say, a number of the ones who went up to Camp Discharge had been uh, captured and held in these miserable prison camps where they had picked up other diseases, a lot of skin diseases you're finding as well in the, the hospital record. We were able at the National Archives to come up with the, um, the register of, of um, all the soldiers who were treated by the doctors there and also the book of the treatments that they were getting which was great. That was like a gold mine to find that and we have a lot of that in the book as well. Uh, good old National Archives in Washington has many, many things I could tell stories about our, our research adventures down there. Now, you were talking about just the experiences with the disease, and you mentioned yeah. in the book that uh, diarrhea killed more than 57,000 men in the Union Army. Yes, amazing. And you see a lot of diarrhea in the, uh, the medical report from the hospital up there for sure, and dysentery, which is where it gets bloody and is really, really deadly. Um, so they would give men astringents, you know, to, to uh, stop the, the diarrhea, but then that would cause other problems, too, um, that would um, be treated uh, in, improperly. So, you know, it, it was not a happy time for a lot of these men. Um, and if they were lucky enough not to be admitted to the hospital, they'd still probably be back in their bunk, um, you know, much of the time just trying to recover and pray they got back home. What kind of a diet would these soldiers have had? Well, we don't know from the records there exactly, but it might have been a diet that would um, constipate them. One of the doctors uh, that I talked to, a current day doctor who's a, a specialist in Civil War medicine, felt like they would have a diet that would be um, not have uh, roughage in it, it would be full of uh, starch and it would be full of beans and 
um, potatoes and things that would not, uh, you know, not be appropriate uh, and might have caused some of their uh, intestinal ailments themselves. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, part of uh, Colonel Hancock's duties was just to keep people around to wait for their paperwork Correct. to come through. Did, did people just wander away? No, and there was a stockade fence, so they'd have to have a pass. But the idea, and you know, during the period when it was cracking down, is that everybody had to stay there during the daytime, in the event that um, the train would show up from, you know, from downtown Philly. That there was a stop right at the bottom of the camp, you know, where the train ran along the Schuylkill. Um, it's more or less on the the uh, the roadbed of the Schuylkill Expressway. Now it was the Reading Line. Um, so an adjutant uh, representative would come up with either the package to give to the, uh, you know, the soldiers he was being discharged or simply a question for that soldier, maybe something needed to be worked out, and so we would need to interview a soldier. So the men needed to be uh, there um, so they could be summoned uh, in the event either they were getting out, hallelujah, or they uh, were needed to be questioned by somebody. Um, yeah, so during the day they would uh, mill around and you know sit around, and then at night they could get passes, but they needed to be back again by morning roll call. So some of these men were had families locally. Did did families yes. visit them, or did they have a chance to go visit their families? Well, yeah, during their pass, you know, when they had a, a pass, and they if their family was close enough, they would certainly go see them. Uh, sometimes when they would we were away uh, overstaying their their pass they would presumably be off seeing their families as well. We don't have a lot of record of uh, families showing up there. Um, there's a reference in one of the regimental histories that I read that the, the locals were very kind to the soldiers, which was good to hear but also puzzling. I don't, we were not able to find any uh, references to delegations of local citizens or even individual local citizens coming, you know, to bring food or to organize prayer groups or the kind of things that were might have happened back then were happening elsewhere back then um, so I'm not exactly sure uh, I think that probably it's more likely people wanted to stay away out of fear of picking up uh, you know a contagious disease there we know the local workers came to help build the place um, and they may there may have been a presence of them coming in as perhaps uh, blacksmiths or you know other uh, necessary day laborers there, uh, but in terms of uh, a caring presence, um, it, uh, it did not show up in the records. It was one of those things we looked hard for and could not find. And the book, when you're talking about some of these soldiers, you, you talk about some of them of had they had quote seen the elephant unquote. What, what did that mean? Yeah, interesting term. It was military jargon, military slang for seeing combat, being thrown in, thrust into. The, horrifying, you know, terrifying combat uh, was this term. They had seen the elephant, and these men had seen the elephant. Uh, nearly all of them had been in multiple battles, and these were the big uh, historic battles of the Civil War, these Pennsylvania men. Most of them were in part of the Army of the Potomac. They had signed up as Pennsylvania volunteers and been federalized, so put under federal uh, command. They had been in, at um, Bull Run, they had been at Antietam, they had been at Gettysburg, Fredericksburg, Petersburg, the March to the Sea down in Atlanta. Some of them had been part of that, Nashville, um, you know, all of them. Um, 
So they had seen the elephant and then some, and seen often, you know, their their friends, uh, wounded, dead, uh, sick, you know, around them. So they had perhaps been wounded themselves, or they had killed men. So you know, they were they were shaken up psychologically, as you can imagine. Um, seeing the elephant is something that I'm sure they saw in their nightmares for the, the rest of their lives. Now, these soldiers were, were people who had been separated from the units for one reason or another. Did it also include people like deserters? Yes, there were some deserters there. And I looked for uh, court-martial records and was not able to find uh, specifics on them. So we don't know. Uh, some of them would get clemency and would have to go um, serve their time back with the rest of their um, regiment or be assigned to another regiment in order to qualify for their discharge pay and their papers, which were, you know, uh, good things to have back then. Um, others may have been imprisoned. Um, we just don't know. Lincoln, President Lincoln at one point issued a, a, a sweeping clemency order saying if the men reported back to their regiments by a certain date, they would be, you know, granted uh, clemency. And we know a case or two at the camp where that, they, that was why somebody showed up again uh, and citing that presidential, uh, you know, clemency. Um, so I don't know exactly what was done for them. Uh, there were a lot of court martials. They would have been held right at the camp, I'm sure. Um, and uh, there's no record that we could find of exactly the outcome of each case. But yes, there were, there were deserters there. And you mentioned uh, one group of people called the Invalid Corps. What, what was that? Yeah, th those were men who had been wounded or had been sick and were not able to be put back into action, uh, but they still had time or they wanted to, you know, remain uh, in, in uniform. And so they had this corps called the Invalid Corps that did light duty. Um, they might have been a guard somewhere um, and like at a camp like Camp Discharge but other other places as well and uh, yeah so the Invalid Corps was a presence up there as well. Now one of the soldiers who was, was at the camp was uh, Captain Damon Kilgore and uh, he had uh, a bit of a relationship with uh, the commander Hancock but what was going on there? Yeah yeah he was he was a feisty guy and when you think that Han Hancock went on to be a lawyer later the two of them uh, were argumentative and not afraid to butt heads, and they butted heads big time. Uh, it was one of those things where um, Kilgore didn't really have the right to um, claim to try to uh, uh, ignore an order or have one of his men ignore an order from the commandant, from uh, Colonel Hancock, but he did. He said, uh, anybody uh, needs to report to me and I will okay an order or not, you know, for something that affects my work up here and quartermaster's work. Uh, and actually, uh, he had no right to do that at Hancock, uh, outranked him. And um, so they, they butted heads over that for a while. It had to do with cleaning out the, the site. It was a, a trivial matter, but it became this fight that only escalated and, and there were threats back and forth and orders back and forth. and. Finally, uh, they had to break them up and reassign um, uh, Kilgore elsewhere. So it's a, a crazy kind of sidelight up there that probably was the talk of the camp when it was happening to have this uh, showdown between these two, you know, ranking officers up there. And um, Hancock, you know, prevailed as should have happened, but uh, there were fireworks. 
Meanwhile, while this is happening, tons and tons of, of soldiers are showing up there. By that point, many of them were POWs, you know, from Andersonville and elsewhere, who had finally made their way back north. And the camp is doing its business of uh, processing them and doing all this while this distracting sideshow is happening. It's an interesting part of the book. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about Andersonville. Uh, where was yeah. it and what, what was it known for? Yeah, it was down in southern Georgia. And it was known for uh, the crowded conditions and the just the, the horrible treatment of the men down there. More than 14,000 Union soldiers died while in captivity at Andersonville. And they were just dropping dead like flies. You know, the worst of it, hundreds a day were dying in the muck down there. Uh, they, you know, the outhouse was their open, um, a, kind of a swampy pit. There was also their drinking water. So you can imagine the uh, intestinal diseases running rampant and men losing, you know, losing much weight, getting emaciated, get, uh, malnourished. Uh, there were chiggers and other kind of uh, critters that were getting under their skin and causing skin diseases, skin rashes. Um, it was just a miserable place. Um, we, we were able to read some of the uh, memoirs of survivors of Andersonville and men who went to Camp Discharge to really get a vivid and graphic uh, accounts of some of what they went through. It was horrible. Um, and I summarize some of that in the book, the things that were happening. A lot of scurvy, you know, from vitamin deficiency where men's teeth were falling out um, and, uh, you know, and men so miserable and so deranged in some cases, they would just walk up to the uh, wall uh, to be shot. They would cross what was called the deadline. And that really was what it meant by a deadline. You cross this, you're dead. And they just willingly walked across there to, you know, be shot dead to put themselves out of their misery. Now you have a photo in the book of, of a man who's basically just skin and bones. Yes. Uh, were you shocked by the condition of some of these men? I had known this because uh, Andersonville is notorious. And uh, my father, I remember, had a book called Andersonville that I had read as well. So I, I knew how horrific it was. But, yeah, these pictures are hard to take. One is in there just to give people an idea that how extreme and horrible the place was. Uh, and that, that was a man actually uh, from White Marsh, I think, uh, outside Philadelphia. He didn't go to Camp Discharge. He might have, but he died before he got there. He died in, in Maryland. There was a, another camp that was uh, a first stop for a lot of the, you know, where they really got uh, medical treatment was at this camp in Annapolis, Maryland. And he died there. Is there any record about how people in that condition were treated medically when they arrived at these camps? Yeah, and well, a lot of their first treatment to kind of stabilize them would be down at this camp parole. And then by the time they got up there, oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, they would be given, um, uh, depending on what they had, uh, treatment for skin diseases um, and treatment for, you know, mal malnutrition, uh, try to get some, gently get some food into them. Um, and... Uh, you know, they most of them were able to get at least out of the camp and back home. There's a handful of them who died. Um, we were not able to locate where they were buried, but their names were there uh, who died. But uh, most of them made it out, but then some of them died uh, soon back home. We have some accounts in the book of that. Yeah. Now, you write about uh, in 1905, there uh, many of these uh, POWs returned to Andersonville 
and that right. there was a memorial down there for the Pennsylvanians who died. You say that there are 1,849 Pennsylvanians right. who died there. Yes, and the states around that time, that was a, a period when a lot of the battlefields were getting memorials or, or monuments to the regiments and to, you know, different actions where the, this is a spot where the, you know, 49 Pennsylvania held the line and the 72nd and, you know, et cetera. Um, and also at Andersonville, states were setting up monuments to their soldiers who had passed away down there. And Pennsylvania was dedicating its its memorial then, and so the state had commissioned this memorial, and paid the uh, the train fare for uh, survivors of Andersonville who were still living who wanted to go down for this ceremony, and a number of men from I was able to piece together who from uh, Camp Discharge was an, um, among those men uh, who went down, and um, and they had a ceremony there. Um, and yeah, it was very moving for a lot of these men, as you can imagine, uh, who were barefoot and bedraggled and, you know, were able to go uh, later in life by then and, you know, in their suits and go and just uh, it all came back to them. Um, and some of them were really angry because that was a point where the, the South was uh, promulgating this idea of the lost cause and it had been a noble cause. and. Uh, the country was turning away, you know, and there was a, a lot of um, Jim Crow uh, law down there and men, you know, black men being lynched. And so these northerners were going down there kind of uh, grumbling about, you know, all that and wanting to remind the country about the Union cause and what the war was about. Right. And you say in the book, you talk about General Harry White from Indiana, Pennsylvania. And you talk about his speech where he says, uh, following what you were saying, his speech decried the new crop of Southern history textbooks that depicted Northerners as aggressors and Southerners as noble victims. Don't be fooled, he said. The rebel doctrines of nullification and secession had been unconstitutional and traitorous. Uh, would and he said this in Southern Georgia. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't, I, I should have, now that I say it, I should have looked at whether the, the Georgia newspapers picked that up or had some tart... Uh, response to it. But yeah, he declared that, you know, in front of everybody at this uh, ceremony. So as the war was coming to an end, uh, were more and more soldiers coming to Camp Discharge? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the war ends in April, or officially ends when Lee, you know, there were a few skirmishes after that, but April. Uh, and the, uh, well, the prisoner exchanges had already resumed, so a lot of soldiers uh, had been released from the uh, POW camps and were making their way north. But yes, also others were making their way. And so the peak of the camp was in May of uh, 65, and then June, and you know, through the summer was quite busy as well. Um, it was an interesting dilemma for the military, too, because they had uh, 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 orders to demobilize and to cut costs and to mothball, you know, installations that were not needed. Um, and they were doing that, but they had to do it in, a, in an orderly way, as orderly as they could. You know, while the public was agitating to get the men home, the men were agitating to get home. Uh, and the government was wanting, you know, cost-cutting. They couldn't just close things up immediately, and at least in a place like Camp Discharge, because there were still these men who were needing to have their paperwork be reconciled. 
Um, the, also, I should mention the Army was even uh, summarily closing hospitals and sending men out of the hospitals even during that spring and summer. Um, so there was a real, you know, on the one hand, a real r rush order, and on the other, they wanted to, you know, not just send people off who were uh, way sick or they hadn't worked out their paperwork. They, so they, in this crunch, they were able to do that. Uh, they were able to reconcile paperwork and get the, get the men out. But it must have been, you know, it was like 24-7 kind of work. Uh, and then finally, by late uh, summer, the work was done. The only men left in the hospital really were camp guards, and one or two who, of the other men who simply were, were not ready to go home yet, were not able to go home yet. But most of them were camp guards, which is interesting. A lot of the camp guards had VD, which they had gotten from their nightly doings uh, in the city uh, or brought VD up with them. But that's another story. I didn't mention VD was pretty rampant. But th so they were treated, and finally the hospital was closed, and the camp was, I'll say, mothballed um, by, you know, autumn. And then they um, inventoried everything and put it up for auction. A lot of other places were being auctioned. There were auctions as well, auctions of uh, horses and mules and supplies and other things. And then in this case of Camp Discharge, auction of all the boards and all the nails and all the um, the cooking pots and, you know, all these other uh, implements, shingles. Uh, so they had an auction in uh, early 66, 1866, and... Things were, you know, people came up and uh, they had a, a couple of weeks to haul everything away and things were hauled away and so, repurposed. So some of these things were repurposed, even buildings. What, what happened to yeah. some of the buildings? That yeah, were some there? of the buildings, some of the uh, proprietors of mills, again, up in uh, Conshohocken, we know of two mill operators who bought uh, a lot of the, uh, the lumber for the buildings and used them for housing for their workers or probably for buildings on the mills as well. This Balagomingo mill that I mentioned earlier, they had the flagpole. They also bought um, uh, the, uh, some of the barracks uh, buildings. And uh, there was one of the doctors um, who also bought uh, the barn and had the barn moved over. And then there's the, the, the sentry box. Uh, he bought, this is a Dr. Uh, Corson, he bought the sentry box and then uh, gave it as a gift to a, one of the local uh, 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 friends of his. Uh, but the sentry box still exists. You can see the sentry box. It's the only uh, uh, building, the only uh, real large thing from the camp that still exists, and it's on an uh, intersection of Spring Mill Road, which is up uh, along the river, and uh, a little lane called Sentry Lane. Uh, and it's lovingly tended by a local uh, resident, and there are he lights it up and has a flagpole, a flag outside it, um, and you know, make sure it's painted. Um, yeah, so that that's uh, what's left of Camp Discharge. Where now. did the flagpole go afterwards? It went up to Balagomingo Mill, was erected there, and like I say, burned down. And I believe it was the 1870s when uh, uh, caught fire. There was a fire at the mill. So, how well known is this site? Uh, when did you first find out about it? Yeah, not well known at all. Uh, it's basically a forgotten story. Even folks who knew about it w sometimes had misimpressions of it. Um, and when I'm, you know, just talking about the book, people are like, really? That was up there? No idea. Um, and 
so this man who got who got the sentry box later on uh, was given by this doctor to him. He was uh, Howard Wood, and there, Philadelphia or Conshohocken had a, a a steel company, an iron company that turned into a steel company called Allen Wood Steel. And so Howard Wood was the operator of the that company back then, wealthy man. He built his uh, summer estate on a bluff right near Camp Discharge, within sight of the old Camp Discharge site. He called that his estate Camp Discharge, as I say, to keep the name alive. Uh, and some of the maps later put Camp Discharge up there, confusing that estate site, which was not anywhere near as big, with the, uh, the uh, Camp Discharge, um, which was, again, maybe a couple hundred yards south of it. Um, that's one confusion, but also there was a sense that Camp Discharge was just a field full of pup tents, you know, just an open field with tents. No, it actually had these fixed uh, barracks, large imposing barracks. Um, my co-author had the thrill of going to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania early in his research for this and coming upon, through some digging, coming upon the only photo of Camp Discharge that... Um, is known to exist and there you see these barracks buildings and then later in our research we were able to find the drawings MacArthur's drawings that um, had diagrams of the of the barracks buildings so you know that was rare to have big barrack buildings like that um, uh, talk a little, little bit more about your research are, are, are the military records at the camp still in existence they are yeah some of them are online um, through, there's a great military website called Fold3, Fold numeral 3, that refers to how you fold a flag at a, uh, you know, a funeral. Um, but uh, Fold3 has some of it, and we were able to scour and find those, but a lot of it is down at the National Archives. Some was actually at the archives up in, uh, the National Archives had a branch up in Northeast Philly. They had some. Uh, the core of it, though, is going to be down in Washington, D.C., where we can, we were able to go uh, to, they have an annex in Maryland, which is where we found those drawings of the camp and of the camp buildings, which was a real breakthrough. And um, they also then have all the pension paperwork for the men themselves and some of the reports by the officers following battles and engagements. But the, the pension paperwork is the gold mine where you find um, what the individual men went through in the war. They would, they or their widows would, you know, apply for them and uh, give testimony and affidavits or doctors' affidavits or, you know, the lawyers would do some research talking to neighbors um, and testifying to what uh, actually the men had gone through during the war and then what they'd gone through after the war that caused them to be applying for a um, a disability pension or then the widow to get a widow's pension. Uh, and yeah, that's where you find that. We spent hours going through those. Um, and it really, you know, the stories just grab you. Uh, these were men in the prime of life and a lot of them were, came out as old men, you know, three, four years later, never really recovered. Did you find any letters or diaries by either soldiers who were part of the garrison or those who were just passing through? Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. And some of the other research was finding the regimental histories, and that's where you would find blow-by-blow -blow accounts of what their regiment did and often what the individual soldiers had done during the battle, and that's where we were able to 
piece together uh, certain things. And yes, and some of the men wrote, wrote memoirs, and we were able to get access to a few memoirs, which were great. Um, and um, and there were a lot of diaries that uh, we refer to in there as well, uh, where the men, had, you know, through their lives, uh, recounted what they did, what their comrades did. Um, yeah, so it was a fascinating pro process of pulling all that together through various sources. What uh, what kind of archaeological explorations have gone on at the site? Yeah, yeah. So Brad Up, my co-author and research partner, he grew up in that area already in Gladwin, PA. He, his home was a few a few miles away. He, as a kid, he knew about this camp. He actually remembered playing on that hillside as a kid, doing a little bit of exploring. Over the years, he be has become a Civil War reenactor and an excavator. You know, he has a, a metal detector. He also has a lot of skills in knowing what he's, what he's seeing, what he's getting, how to, um, you know, clean it off and, and treat it properly. He was uh, realizing he had to um, find the trash pits, and the trash pits, or refuse pits, really, um, were where you were likely to find concentrations of things. Trash pits also would um, often be the latrine as well. Fortunately, 150 years later, you could dig into that, and it's not going to gross you out or get you sick. Um, but that's where the, the items that um, were, would be tossed in. He would dig down like six feet, like a grave digger, go down six feet, and you would start finding. He was finding a lot of things. So he has a display of things. It's a, remarkable, and he knows what they are. Um, and I have some of them. Uh, we show them at, at talks. Um, but plenty of bullets, plenty of buttons, but other things like uh, old bone pipes, um, wedding bands, uh, accoutrement from uh, weapons, from rifles, from uh, scabbards, uh, uh, other adornment on the, um, on the uniforms uh, or insignia markers. Um, great stuff. And there it is, and he's dug uh, over the months. Um, the, only, the current owner of the property, which is a Philadelphia country club, a private country club, has you know given him permission to go during certain uh, periods of the year to do his digging, and he's up there spending countless hours. He loves it, but uh, you gotta be a big bear of a man like him to be able to do that hand digging. And he's dug up uh, plenty of things, and he's still you know wanted to do more of it. Um, now you've written you've written previously about the Civil War, and you've been on PA Books before uh, yes. for some of those books. Uh, what draws you to the Civil War? Well, you know, my dad was a Civil War buff. I used to play Civil War when I was a kid, read about it a lot. I came of age during the centennial of the Civil War, like a lot of us, uh, and it was in you know in the air. And again, you know, through my through my dad as well. I had an ancestor who was in the Civil War. I grew up having his old veterans cap is G-A-R, uh, Kepi cap, you know, the recognizable cap that soldiers wore back then. Um, and, you know, heard stories about it. Um, Brad the same. Brad has an ancestor who was captured. Uh, he has, has read over his diary. Um, so, you know, it's meaningful to him personally. Um, yeah, it's a very dramatic time in our history. And it's constantly being revisited. So, you know, it's a, it's a, a lot of people care deeply about the Civil War, believe me. 
Now you said that the site is owned, uh, at least in part, by this country club. Correct. Uh, if people wanted to visit, is, is it open to the public, or do they have to make arrangements? Well, at present, there's a, a trail, a public access trail, is the only way to get to the site. And at present, you'd, you'd go through there. There's no signage. One of our goals, and I think this is going to happen, is to have signs in place, markers with the, you know, cap with the um, text explaining what's where, what you're seeing, what happened here. That will be once you're on the premises of the camp itself. But if you wanted to go, you could go. There's a uh, nature center up in in that area called Riverbend. They have a parking lot, and right off the parking lot is the entrance, a marked entrance to this trail. And uh, you go down about a half mile down the trail, down toward the city. It parallels the, you're above on the, this hillside. You're paralleling the river and the Google Expressway. You head down this trail and you get to uh, foundations. And those are the foundations of a barn that was a settler barn. Uh, the spring house that was a you know original spring house that supplied some of the water to the camp and the foundation of the farmhouse where the commandant set up a shop um, set up his residence uh, that's there and we're hoping to get markers there and then at either end of the trail uh, have some something about the camp as well um, but you could you can go there now I would urge people to hold off a little bit and maybe by next spring or so we'll have some signage that will really you know, enhance their appreciation of what they're seeing. Uh, and uh, yes, that's, uh, that's the goal, and that's what you would see. Now, we talked about people like Hancock and Kilgore. Were, were there any other figures that, that you discovered in your research that, that you thought were really interesting? Yeah, um, and we profile about 15 or 16 of them and their, um, their fate after the war. Um, I'll, you know, I'll mention a few of them briefly. Um, there was a, a man who was a German-Jewish immigrant. His name was Albert Thalheimer. And he went in a, a, a regiment of probably German speakers, largely German speakers. Uh, and he went to Andersonville, lost 100 pounds, half his body weight, uh, survived, came back, um, ended up in Reading, PA, where he became an entrepreneur had several businesses. Finally, the one that was most successful was a cigar box manufacturing company. But always he cared deeply about other veterans, uh, where he hired a number of them, even, you know, ones that were kind of somewhat infirm to do what they could in his factory. Uh, he um, advocated for the, for the rights of and, you know, pensions for, for the soldiers. He set aside land for an old soldier's home, and for a monument uh, at Mount Penn, which is uh, right there in, in Reading as well. And, you know, always kept them close and lobbied uh, on their behalf. So, you know, he's, uh, he's a success story, you might say. We have plenty of others, of kind of grim stories of men who never really uh, did well uh, and died young uh, from one disease or another. Um, but I'll mention a, a little more about a man named Isaac Horner, uh, Brad Up happened to be the one who opened up his pension file, and there falls out his diary from the war in Andersonville and a couple of photos of him. And these photos were rare to have at all, let alone they were the photos in the pension file. Um, and they were because 
he had abandoned his family after the war and taken off and uh, resettled with another family in Ohio and became like a farmhand and a you know hand there and almost a member of the fa that family. Um, when he died, somebody in that family reached out to the family back in Camden, had learned only at that point, uh, I guess from papers that this Isaac had that he came upon and realized, oh my gosh, and so he, he notified them, and they, they, these two families corresponded and traded photos um, and wanted to visit each other, somehow reconciled, realizing, you know, they were victims of this man's, you know, abandonment and, and the war, you might say, uh, in a larger sense. Um, and his story is told in there as well. Well, we've been speaking with Jim Remsen. He is the author of Back from Battle, The Forgotten Story of Pennsylvania's Camp Discharge and the Weary Civil War Soldiers It Served. Jim, thank you for speaking with us. Uh, thank you, Phil. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.